<clears throat> All right, well, we are at that moment in our uh, service where we can turn together to the Word of God and uh, uh, have the Holy Spirit speak to us through the pages of His truth. And I'm very excited uh, to talk to you this morning uh, about uh, this passage in Hebrews 10, something we've looked at already months ago, but now we're taking a different look at it in a different context. I want to begin by saying that years ago, John MacArthur wrote a book in response to some heretical views of the gospel uh, that were spreading through mainline Protestant churches and denominations, you may remember. It came to be known as easy believism, which essentially amounts to being a hearer of the word, not a doer of the word. Proponents of this view teach that people who trust Christ really don't need to exhibit fruit in their lives because fruit, well, that has to do with repentance. And repentance, they claim, is really not part of the gospel. It comes after. As if this weren't bad enough, champions of this view have gone on record stating that a person who believes could continue to live a pagan lifestyle and even later denounce the faith but as long as he, at some point, said that he believed in Christ, his salvation is secure. It's as if the gospel is some kind of magical formula, isn't it? Certainly, our lengthy study in the book of Hebrews tells us that this easy believism is indeed quite heretical. MacArthur thought so, too, and takes it to task in his first book called The Gospel According to Jesus. A few years later, he came out with The Gospel According to the Apostles. And then, a few years after that, The Gospel According to Paul. As the titles suggest, MacArthur's intent was to set the record straight that there is only one gospel and its meaning is very clear. Surrender your life to Christ and follow him. Now you may be wondering if MacArthur, if MacArthur weakens his stance uh, that there is only one gospel and defines it this very strong way by presenting the gospel according to three different groups. I mean, shouldn't he have played it safe and wrote one book called The Gospel According to the New Testament and included everyone? Well, I can assure you that his trilogy was a very clever way to prove his point with great emphasis, and his readership understood perfectly. Here's what he says in the foreword of the last book of that trilogy, The Gospel According to Paul. Quote, Nothing Paul ever preached or wrote was in any way a departure from what Christ or his apostles had been teaching from the start. Paul's gospel was exactly the same message Christ proclaimed and commissioned to the twelve to take into all the world. There is only one gospel, and it is the same for Jews and Gentiles alike. End quote. There is only one gospel. It calls for nothing short of death to self and embracing the work of Christ alone, which necessarily produces a drastically different lifestyle from then on. And MacArthur proves it clearly and unmistakably three times over. 
Now, I want to take my cue from MacArthur's work in setting the record straight for the gospel and do the same this morning with the Christmas story. I want to set the record straight for that. And don't worry, I, I'm only going to do it once. Well, actually, this is the second time, right? We've done it once already this past, past Sunday. But there have been a, a few versions of the Christmas story circulating around for decades. The one that our country has, has gone with for most of its existence centers around old St. Nick, who is, by the way, not an American invention. He's actually somewhere around 1,700 years old. That's right. He doesn't have, a gray, have gray hair and a gray beard for nothing. He was a monk from what is now modern Turkey. He was so revered that the Roman Catholic Church canonized him. That's, uh, and thanks to a community of Dutch immigrants living in America in the mid-1700s who celebrated him at the time of Christmas, he reached nation, a nationwide status or, uh, or, or fame by the mid-1800s. Saint Nick in Dutch is Santa Claus. The German custom of the Christmas tree was added shortly after that, followed by the candy cane by the 19th century that eventually gave us this version of Christmas in all its commercialized mess. Genuine Christians are, of course, not fooled by any of this. We're not. But that doesn't mean that Christians don't have, or many Christians, don't have a Christmas version of their own, well, that is just as popular and sadly just as dangerous in the Christian society. You're saying, well, what is that? Well, I defined it a little bit last Sunday. Here's what I said, quote, When the Son of God condescended and took on flesh, God guaranteed Christ's future rule, the kingdom of and his kingdom would have no end. And he would judge the living and the dead and receive and reward those who belong to him. At that, all that, as well as the earthly ministry and cross work of Christ, is bound up in the incarnation. We tend to lose sight of this because of where we are in God's eschatological plan. But we should learn to see Jesus' messianic kingdom from the crash. See in the incarnation God's end game. End quote. We showed clearly that the Old Testament saints understood Messiah in this way, both as Savior and ruler, who would save his people and set up his kingdom. In fact, the separation of Christ's two advents is not clearly delineated in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and others all saw the Messiah's work and coming really as inseparable. And while we know from the New Testament that he does come twice, we would do well to see in his first coming the promise of the kingdom. Didn't the archangel Gabriel and other angels, Simeon and the prophetess Anna, all attest the covenant guarantee of Messiah and his eternal rule at his birth? Yes, they did. Many Christians dwell, you see, mostly on the fact that Jesus came to save them from their sin, not realizing that this is only half his mission. And when they stop there, they stop running the race of faith. 
as we said last time, it's so indicative of a large percentage of, of the church today to think about the Christian life as simply being saved from hell. Great, they say. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And that's all that the faith is to them. But Messiah will also usher us into his kingdom, right? Bring all authority under his feet, judge God's enemies, bring order to the universe once again, and put everything right. And when you have that perspective of the incarnation in mind, it will affect the way you live. You will run the race of faith, and you'll run well, looking for the other part of the program, reaching for the better country, being satisfied with an inheritance that's been promised to you, being moved by none of the tragedies in this world or temporal fleeting pleasantries of this earthly life. Now, this morning, I want to continue then to set the record straight in the second Christmas message. There is only one Christmas story in the Bible. It's told by many different biblical characters, each with his and her own unique lens that allows us to see, well, important elements of the same story. All those elements are important. Joseph had one. Mary had one. Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna the prophetess. They all had one. And then there are the portraits by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three emphasizing important aspects of the same story. The lens that I want, to, I want us to look through this morning, however, is the lens of Jesus. I want to focus your thoughts on the Christmas according to Jesus. And to help us with that, we look at Hebrews chapter 10. We're in verses 5 through uh, 9. In this passage, the writer to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8 from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which was more familiar, of course, to the Hellenistic Jews of the first century and to his congregation. So Psalm 40 is recast in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, with some valuable commentary by the writer himself in verses 8 to 9. Listen as I read that commentary. I'll start with verse 5 so we can... Hear the whole context. Therefore, when Christ comes into the world, he says, You have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. You have not taken pleasure in whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin. Then I said, Behold, I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So reads God's word. The context of Psalm 40 is about what it means to be a dedicated servant of God. We looked at it in our Sunday school hour this morning. As the psalmist wrote this psalm, it is about, half of it is about the dedicated servant. Now it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the most dedicated servant of God there ever was, that's Jesus. 
The writer of Hebrews knows this, and he puts the words of this dedicated psalmist in the mouth of the most dedicated servant, Jesus, in chapter 10 of of his letter. Now, you should know that Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10 use the same verses to make different points. We are making neither of them this morning. Rather, I make another point, and it's the meaning of Christmas as told by Jesus himself. It's Christmas according to Jesus. Let's first understand the context that Jesus lays out for us, all right? The context. He identifies the period that he's talking about as the incarnation. There's no question about this. Verse 5, therefore, when he comes into the world, that would be his incarnation. Now, what Jesus then says after this in the rest of verse 5 and all of verse 6, he, of course, did not say to the Father from the manger, obviously. Though it is certainly true that as God, he was fully aware of what he was doing at every moment, even as he lay in the manger. Paul declared of Jesus in Colossians 1.17 that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That was even when he lay in the manger. That was true of him at every moment of his humanity. But it's most likely at the beginning of his earthly ministry, perhaps as he, as he came up out of the waters of baptism just before the Holy Spirit lighted on him and the Father declared, this is my Son in whom, I'm, in whom I am well pleased, that Jesus spoke these words to the Father in communion with him. Here I am, a body you have prepared for me. That doesn't make this any less about the incarnation. It still has to do with the reason he took on flesh, right? When he comes into the world, the writer says, this is what he will do. Now, what Jesus expresses to the Father through the very words of Psalm 40, 6 to 8, is his understanding of Christmas. And we can put them into four recognizable statements. Think of them as answers to the question, what is Christmas according to Jesus? Somebody may ask you that at some point, either today or during this week until the new year. And if they do, you know what to say. Here we go. Christmas according to Jesus is about God's plan to establish the new order. It's about God's plan to establish the new order. The writer of Hebrews tells us exactly this in verses 8 and 9. It's his editorial comment on verses 5 to 7. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. That's not in quotes, that last sentence. That is the editorial comment of the writer. Editorial comments in the Bible are a great find because they're the writer's own thoughts about how an Old Testament scripture applies. In this case, what we are about to examine from Psalm 40, which Jesus himself speaks to the Father, is all about God's plan to take away the first order in order to establish the second. What's he talking about? Well, the first order is the way of life that God established for his people that found its fullest expression in the Mosaic Covenant. 
otherwise known as the Old Covenant. God himself, you see, established this covenant, which was his promise to commune with his people Israel and that they would commune with him. Now, you need to know God had dictated the way people would approach him and worship him since the very beginning of time. Worship was always predicated upon the blood of a perfect sacrifice, along with certain necessary rituals. And one's approach to God had to be holy, not in a mundane manner. We don't approach God the same way we would approach anybody else. In fact, Moses learned this very early on when God told him to remove his shoes. Do you remember? God had set apart not only the bush that radiated fire, but the surrounding ground on which Moses stood. And his shoes, which had already touched common ground, were not fit for the sanctified ground. Now, by the time of the cutting of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant at Sinai, God established the most advanced order of communing with him uh, and, and with, the God, with his godly people to date. The Old Testament covenant was about how true worshipers in Israel needed to be holy so that God could dwell among them, so that they could be his people and he would be their God. It ordered every part of their lives, this first order, every part. Set dietary laws for them, prohibited any contact with dead animals or dead bodies, who they could marry, how to raise their children, where they could live, that would be inside God's gated community, not outside the gate, how to worship him, how to pray to him, how to live for him. All of this was stipulated and spelled out in the minutest detail. This was the old covenant in which God ordered their lives. But that order was temporary by design. Its very sacrificial system and priesthood pointed to a superlative order of things that God would eventually usher in for the rest of human history. That was the new covenant, the new order for living. Now Christmas, according to Jesus, is all about his work in establishing a new order of life for us. All of us understand what it means to live according to a particular order or standard, standard of living. We all appreciate an, or, uh, an order that is civilized and orderly and wise. One doesn't have to live, have lived very long in America to see monumental changes in the order of life, right? For those of us in our 50s, these even recent changes in the order of life are drastic. And for those in their 70s and 80s, it's nothing less than tragic. There have been changes to the order of life just, as I say, over the past two years that were precipitated by this pandemic that we all find very annoying and inconvenient, to say the least. And it was no more than a year into, into it that some stark, uh, uh, some rather started uh, talking about a new normal. Do you remember that? A new normal. According to Harvard stu a Harvard study in 2020, quote, Harvard experts say some of our adaptations have accelerated already, already existing trends like the development of a cashless society, the increase of remote work, and the decline of brick-and-mortar retail. 
and they expect some of these will become a more permanent part of the post-pandemic's new order, the new normal, end quote. Wow, new normal. Maybe we should ask, what is normalcy? That's a good question. It's the state of being normal. According to the Oxford Dictionary, normal is conforming to a standard. Oh, okay, a standard. We're talking about a standard of living. Normal is usual, it's typical, it's what we expect. It's normal for horses to put their ears back when they're agitated. We talk about normal work hours, normal heart rates, normal blood pressure, normal for wood to rot over time, especially when it's wet. Normal for you to, to be sore after a hard day's work in the garden. We understand that. Standard of things. Now, we're not against advancements that necessarily change societal habits, right? Like smoking. Someone says, oh, smoking indoors was normal 50 years ago. But now, it's not allowed because of health reasons. That's a new normal. A lot of us remember that. The new normal, in this case, is a smart change. And there are other instances of smart changes that constitute a standard for us that is quite different than it was a hundred years ago. And I think we're glad for those changes. It makes sense. But can we say the same thing about morality? Can we say the same thing about spirituality? Enough Americans in high places think so, and they've been successful in helping to redefine normal in these areas. One change is that each person gets to decide what's normal for his and her life, which means that it was normal. What, what is normal for one person, morally speaking, is not normal for another. Normal is now relative for the very first time in human history. Normal is relative. Another change is the basis on which a person determines normalcy for him or her, and that is what's, what best accommodates his or her lifestyle. Uh, we've seen, with the, seen this with the, the gender issue. Regardless of what science says and biology, a person determines his or her own gender on the basis of feelings. Is that silly? Today in our country, we cannot talk about what constitutes a normal marriage, a normal family, a normal parenting. Can we ever know what a normal human being looks like anymore? Well, it's in the midst of all this moral chaos that the light of God's truth shines brightest and warms our hearts. The Son of God came in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, and restored normalcy to the human race. He also displayed to the world what a normal human being looks like. For he was the only normal human being who has ever lived since the fall of Adam. And if you want to know what a normal human being looks like, how he thinks and how he acts in all situations of life, look at Jesus. He's been tempted in all ways yet without sin, and he has left his word in all matters of life and godliness. He was perfect as a man, and the good news is that anyone can be made perfect by resting in his righteous works and cross work, the only righteous work that God accepts. It's rather ironic 
that many in our country find this time of year, which signifies for all Christians the time when God became man and brought normalcy to human life through his work, to highlight their distress, accentuate their loneliness, exacerbate their depression, and remind them of just how hopeless life is for them. It is ironic, isn't it? It's always been true that suicide rates climb at this time of year more than any other time in the calendar. It's in this slough of human misery brought on by human depravity that distorted normalcy that the sun came. And it's obvious why he needed to come to remedy sin and alienation from God and establish a new order of life, which is really the way God had always intended life to be from the beginning. Well, that's the first answer to the question of Christmas according to Jesus. Here's the second. And you'll notice that each one of these builds on the one before. So, number two, Christmas according to Jesus is about God's plan to establish the new order through the sacrifice of his son that is in verse 7. Jesus said, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. According to this, Jesus wants us to know that such a grandiose plan of God to cancel sin and alienation from God and establish a new way of life, that to be born again, to have a holy and righteous life that pleases God and that he commends, would take nothing short of the death of his son. As others have said many times over the years, Jesus was born to die. Jesus said in verses 5 and 6, You have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. You have not taken pleasure in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. This is a wonderful expression, beloved, really. Uh, if we understand it correctly, it is the expression in time and space of the covenant that God made with the Son in eternity past to save a people for himself. I want us to be careful to understand precisely what the Son says here and start with some clarification regarding the Old Testament sacrifices. Sacrifices and, and offerings under the Old Covenant were never uh, unpleasing to the Lord or displeasing to the Lord, I should say, so long as they were offered in faith from the heart of a genuine worshiper. God, of course, abhorred any kind of lip service or going through the motions. And that's the point of Psalm 40. That's what it makes. God prescribed, sacrifice, prescribed sacrifices in the Levitical Code. Later, God told unrighteous Israel on several occasions that he did detest their sacrifices because they offered them not from a, a genuine heart of faith, but hypocritically. So if God is pleased with sacrifices that are offered according to the Levitical code, in faith, from the heart, why does the Son say to the Father, sacrifices and offerings for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them? Well, it's because Jesus is making a comparison. A comparison between the old order... In the new order. He's comparing the Old Testament sacrifices of the old covenant to the sacrifice of himself. The former 
Old Testament sacrifice leads to the latter. The former is a type of the latter. The former gives way to the latter. And the latter makes the former obsolete. Jesus tells us that God was not satisfied or finding any pleasure in the Old Testament sacrifices as an end in themselves because they were designed eventually to usher in Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, which God much preferred. It was God's plan from all eternity that the Son would be given a human body, that he could offer a sacrifice for the sins of those who would later come to inhabit heaven. Jesus acknowledges God's perfect will and said, I have come to do it. It was also in God's plan that the Mosaic Covenant would serve an honorable but temporary purpose, and that would be to broadcast in graphic and bloody ways this divine plan for Messiah. Number three, Christmas, according to Jesus, is about God's plan to establish the new order through the sacrifice of his son alone. That's a very important word, alone. It is written of me in the scroll to do your will, O God. I love this ever so brief comment in Psalm 40. It's in Psalm 40. What God has ordained in heaven to come about on the earth, he made sure was communicated clearly to Israel in the writings of the Torah. This is why we find Jesus expounding on God's plan of salvation with the disciples on the road to Emmaus from all the prophets and the writings. It was, it's wonderful that God's will is codified for us in Scripture. And when they heard it, it burned within them. What makes the incarnation so significant is not just that God had designated the Son to take on human flesh so that he could pay the penalty of sins for sinners, as well as to become their high priest and sympathize with their weaknesses. What makes it significant is also the fact that the Son of God was the only one who could accomplish this, which makes the incarnation that much more crucial in the grand scheme of salvation history. It was Christ alone who could reconcile man to God and establish this new relationship, this new order of things, establish this standard of normalcy for life and godliness. The Old Testament prophesied of God's anointed one Messiah who would come to save and establish this new order. He's the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3. He's the seed of Abraham, the son of promise prophesied to Abraham in Genesis and later that Paul tells about in Galatians 3.16. He is the one whom God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus was transfigured before Peter and John, God stated the same thing again and this time said, listen to him. There's no question that God demanded the blood of a perfect sacrifice to pay for the sin of his elect and that it had to be the second member of the Trinity. As the reformers defended 
with every drop of their blood. Salvation, we know, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No one can ever save himself, for he would have to be paying for his own sin, which would take an eternity in hell. But Jesus did just that for the sinner in only three hours on the cross. Without the without Jesus, there is no Savior, and without the Savior, there is no salvation. Number four, Christmas, according to Jesus, is about God's plan to establish the new order through the sacrifice of his Son alone that the Son was delighted to do. This truth is made both by implication of the text itself and by the context of which uh, the quote comes, Psalm 40. There in verse 8, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O my God. And that's certainly the implication as well behind the words in Hebrews 10.7. I have come. You know, here I am. They speak not only of the son's willingness, but his eagerness to do what delighted the father. And we know from what the writer says later in Hebrews 12.3, that it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that allowed him to endure the plan that would bring about the new order. And, that, and what was this joy that he anticipated? <clears throat> well, it was certainly the pleasure of the Father, for starters. If this is the plan that God delighted in, then God's Son was only too happy to oblige him. But also, Jesus' relationship with the Father would actually go back to the way it was before he left glory. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Now, this is tight fellowship between the members of the Trinity. In addition, we can add that the conquering of death, the saving of the elect, the exalting of the church at the end of history. All of this overjoyed Christ. The writer describes the way Jesus looked ahead to the promise of God's future blessing. The point here is that Jesus strongly desired, as, as the servant par excellence, to fulfill God's plan because he knew how it would end. Jesus came to run his own individual course that God the Father ordained for him. And at the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to die for the sins of God's people to save them by paying God's penalty for sin. He conquered death by rising from the dead, and now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Fifth and finally... Christmas, according to Jesus, is about God's plan to establish the new order through the sacrifice of the Son alone that the Son was delighted to do and will consummate. He will consummate it. We mentioned that Jesus' delight in doing God's will, mentioned in Psalm 40, is implied in Hebrews 10, 5-9. Another implication from our text is this consummation of God's new order which is one of the greatest motivations in the book of Hebrews for all Christians to embrace. 
want you to listen very carefully to what I have to say. We know that one great theme in Hebrews is apostasy, the danger of falling away from the truth. Now, there were those who had forsaken the assembly as a matter of habit, and they were exhibiting signs of, of never having believed to begin with. They knew and enjoyed the truth. They enjoyed gospel living and were very close, very close to embracing the gospel itself until persecution dissuaded them. And the writer opens the book with a strong warning to those people. And it's a warning that rings out today as well. Not to neglect the voice of God that he gives today through Jesus Christ, his chosen servant. The writer calls those who are drifting to listen. Listen to God who spoke by his son in these last days many times over, warning them of the consequences of neglecting him and his gospel. Chapter 2, pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away so, from so great a salvation that was first spoken through the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard. Chapter 3, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 10, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice of sin that remains. Chapter 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks to you. According to Jesus' Christmas story, the right way for any unbeliever to respond is to turn to the Lord and his redeeming work, that's faith, and abandon his or her old order of life that is absolutely futile. That's repentance. Faith and repentance. And for God's redeemed own, oh, there's motivation here as well. Jesus' role in bringing about God's new order is one of the greatest motivations to press on to the better country. We, like those Old Testament saints, out of a desire for a better country that is a heavenly one, we press on. We stay the course. We seek the kingdom. Is this not what the writer of Hebrews has been arguing all throughout his letter? especially chapter 11. Is this not the way he calls us to run? Looking to Jesus becomes our greatest source of encouragement, as it was for Stephen, the very moment of his death. Remember, his gaze was so focused on Christ, who was his goal and prize, that nothing around him mattered anymore, nor was he cognizant of it. Paul also shared the same attitude when he considered all his worldly achievements to be rubbish for the surpassing riches of Christ. Listen, listen to me. Let, let me focus your attention on the phrase, despise the shame. This comes out of Hebrews as well. Jesus, in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, despising the shame. We had occasion to look at this many weeks ago. What does it mean and why is it something worth noticing? The shame here is obviously being hung naked on a tree as a spectacle for all to see. 
Death by crucifixion was reserved, you know, for the, the worst of humanity. Even the most vile criminal who was a Roman citizen would never, ever be crucified. That was beneath them. They were too good for that kind of death. It was an embarrassing uh, end to endure, to be sure. But Jesus endured it for a noble cause, to please the Father and to save his people. It was also the way to glory and exaltation. He therefore embraced it. He wasn't ashamed of it. He embraced it. The road to joy was the way of the cross. Paul tells young Timothy, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Therefore, Jesus was not embarrassed in the slightest to fulfill God's will. And if we look to Christ as we run, to Jesus, our pioneer, who shows us the way, we too can learn to despise uh, or to, uh, to welcome, rather, we despise the shame that is so often associated with running the race of faith. We can overcome the stigma that the world has placed on an obedient life for Christ that seems to deter so many Christians from running well. Paul said that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Christians are reminded of their greatest motivation in the Christmas story according to to Christ. Well, I might bring our brief little Christmas homily to a close by saying that Christmas, according to Jesus, is about God's plan to establish the new order. He will do it through the sacrifice of his son alone that the son was delighted to do and will consummate. Jesus inaugurated this plan by his first coming, and he will consummate it in his second coming. Mm -hmm. And together, those two advents communicate the Christmas according to Jesus. Those of us who are caught in the middle of these two great advents, well, we can take them or take from them, I should say, our greatest motivation to press on toward the, the better country. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And that old order, well, here it refers to the old covenant. But in everybody's life, there is an old order of things. And some still live there. could be a religious order for some secular orders of life for others, but all of them are depraved orders in the end. And Jesus came to put those away and to set up a new order of life, the way of life, the way of salvation, an eternity with God, a great inheritance, a perfect kingdom, and an end to sin and wickedness once for all. You want to be part of that new order. You need to listen to the Christmas according to Jesus.